Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm excited today to be joined by our guest, David Chapman. David is a writer, computer scientist, and engineer, a Vajrayana Buddhist practitioner. He blogs on several sites, including his hypertext book at meaningness.com. And today we're finishing up a two-part conversation where we're exploring the topic of Buddhist ethics in an ongoing series on Buddhist geeks on the topic of ethics. The title of today's conversation is Western Buddhism is Dead. Long live Western Buddhism. Before we jump into the second part of our conversation with David, I wanted to just mention briefly that we've got an upcoming Buddhist Geeks retreat happening this summer. It'll be happening in Western North Carolina and will be led by myself and my teaching partner, Emily Horn. The retreat is on the Zen path. And it'll be an exploration of three styles of meditation that you typically find in the Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen traditions. Um, it's our own minimalist, stripped-down version of these practices, the practices of concentration, of inquiry, and of awareness. And we'll be exploring these in the context of an intensive week-long retreat with a lot of time of silent sitting, a small group of 15 people, and... Um, plenty of time each day for social meditation practice and a contemplative practice around the use of technology. These are some of the innovations and uh, modifications that we've made to the traditional retreat model that we learned in the retreat centers of the United States. We'd love if you take a moment to check it out if you're interested in joining. There are three spots left in the retreat. BuddhistGeeks.com slash retreats. And without further ado, here's the second part of our conversation with David Chapman. Western Buddhism is dead. Long live Western Buddhism. Buddhist Geeks. Exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. This is something that we, you know, we talked about in a previous Buddhist Geeks episode about consensus Buddhism and, and the way that uh, from your research, you sort of saw that, um, that the, the tantric approach was kind of like, um, suppressed in a certain way in the United States um, in the, I guess it was in the late 80s or something, really? Yeah, or late 80s, early 90s, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so part of where you go with this uh, series, which I think is really interesting, and, and this, okay, this I just want to say I appreciate that, you, you know, because as I was reading through this, it was like getting more and more depressing, and I was feeling, <laughs> you know, really, I was like, I was like I, halfway through or two-thirds of the way through, I was like, all right, I'm just done being a Buddhist. You know, that's that's where I kind of got with it. Like, I'm just so... I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I think for some people, that's a good thing to feel. Um, I felt that many times before, so it wasn't, like, unfamiliar, and it didn't cause yeah, right. an existential crisis or anything. But it was like, oh, yeah. yeah, now I remember why I'm, I can be really cynical about this whole, this whole thing. And, but then, you know, where you go with it toward the end, it's like... Uh, you know, and we're going to talk about this guy Robert Keegan. You know, but he he this this educational psychologist who talks about stages of you know meaning making or cognitive development or whatever. But you know, th there's a phrase he uses often: um, deconstructive and then reconstructive phases of development. And and I felt like you really deconstruct the shit out of Buddhist ethics in the first part, but then you, you know, you kind of start to reconstruct and offer some new way of looking at things. And that felt like, um, like, oh my God, thank you for that lifeline because I don't want to just, you know, be floating around in this like nihilistic and like depressed space anymore. Um, I want to actually think about how to like do something better, you know, that's less, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's less of a, I'm not going to get the term right. Hegemonic, you know, <laughs> that's a geeky term. Hegemonic, you know, power play. Um, so, yeah, t talk to me a bit about uh, tantric ethics and how that's 
how there is actually a different a different way of understanding ethics in the Buddhist tradition. You know, is sit, sitting in there in the runes, you know, uh, waiting to be rediscovered. Yeah, uh, well, it's not um, well developed in the tradition, just because ethics really isn't the Buddhist thing. But there's there's pieces there that, uh, for me, you mentioned Robert Keegan, who uh, has profoundly influenced my view on understanding of a lot of things, but ethics especially. I see resonances between um, Vajrayana and uh, his approach, and I try to develop those. And it's what I have to say is um, tentative and, and really sketchy, and I don't know whether it can work at all, but it, it looks it looks to me like a, a promising direction. Um, there's... Uh, I'm not sure how much detail to go into on Keegan because he's what he, his his the understanding that he offers is is quite complex. Sure. Uh, so I think maybe I won't try to review all that. Um, but he has a, as you said, a stage theory of ethical development um, for adults. There's basically three stages of increasingly sophisticated ways of approaching ethics and i my analysis is that what's taught as buddhist ethics now is essentially the um the first adult stage which is stage three in his scheme and that's it's barely adequate to function in modern society it's really on the it's it's he says it's it's developmentally appropriate for adolescence it's not fully adult and i say that this so-called buddhist ethics is actually holding people back from making the natural reconstructive transition into stage four and then on to stage five and in some ways vajrayana looks like stage five uh there's definitely not a i may just simply be reading things in but it feels to me like it's a real thing um and uh so i sort of sketch how buddhism could uh operate on a stage four or stage five basis and um Particularly, stage five looks to me similar to Dzogchen in um, certain ways that I draw out. Yeah, I mean, this is, um, I think, one of the most interesting and also one of the most challenging, especially if you haven't read Keegan. Um, I, I, fortunately for both of us, you know, I, I've read a number of Keegan's books and really love, you know, how he approaches this, and so. For, for me, I was yeah. It was like, exciting to me that it was something that you knew and was that you were also inspired by him. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, and I wanted to bring this up because we 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 both have this weird uh, semi connection to uh, another another uh, person named Ken Wilber, uh-huh. and a totally different kind of connection. You know, I I, I moved to Colorado in my teens or early twenties, and I I worked for him and in his institute for a couple of years. Um, and also really got into his work um, and was kind of a you know an acolyte of sorts when I was quite you know when I was younger and then got disillusioned by a lot of things um, the ideas and also the the community um, but one of the one of his main influences and inspirations is Keegan when he talks about developmental yeah. models and and um, you know one of the ideas that I thought was really interesting that Wilbur did develop um, that seemed really relevant to where you were exploring, and I, I, I wanted to at least mention it um, in this conversation, is the distinction that, that, that he makes between, um, you know, if you're looking at your sort of quote-unquote first-person experience, um, you know, your subjective experience, um, there are, you know, when you're doing meditation training, there you know are, are many different maps in the meditative traditions that describe some sort of stage-like sequences for um, contemplative phenomenology. You know of, of 
I mean, we've talked to, to a lot of people who really geek out on this, on Buddhist geeks, like, you know, Daniel Ingram, for instance. Um, and, and there's different models for that, but, but they all are describing ways in which your subjective experience changes um, in a kind of somewhat predictable manner when doing certain kinds of practices and with certain kinds of ideas and certain kinds of contexts. Um, and, and so Wilbur called those state stages, you know, that you go through these stages in, in terms of your state experiences. Um, and then he talked about, you know, Keegan and, you know, all of the antecedents to Keegan, you know, as being part of this post-structuralist wave in philosophy um, and how they were sort of looking at like Kohlberg and, um, and others were looking at structural stages in, in people's first person experience that they were mm -hmm. sort of, you couldn't actually, and this was the most interesting thing about this idea to me is he said, you couldn't, you can't really see the, your structure stage. You can't see where you are in, in these sort of, um, these maps of, um, cognitive development or ethical development with your, with your, um, sub, like with a meditative awareness or with your attention. You can't see hmm. a stage five thought arising or a stage three thought arising. Um, it's almost like those structures are invisible to our subjective experience, at least the direct gaze of it. And yeah. And so, and, and they're also somewhat inter, they're interdependent. They're not, they're not, they're not interconnected totally. They're not the same thing. They're not equivalent. That you that there's mm -hmm. a way in which you know someone can have like a very sophisticated understanding of like deep states of meditative awareness and still be like you said a kind of adolescent <laughs> or or the converse that someone could be quite mature and developed um, you know in terms of like a Keegan idea like a very mature fluid thinker um, but at the same time they may have no no idea really much of some of the subtler states of, of meditative practice. Um, and I always found that really interesting and really helpful to kind of make sense of the, the muck of, of like what actually you see in the contemplative world. Yeah. I, know, I was just yeah. curious to share that, that and see, good, see your thoughts. Um, I think that's a really good insight. I hadn't quite thought about it that way. Uh, I do think, um, you know, there's a kind of assumption, partly because of the myth of Buddhist ethics, that somebody who has spent decades meditating in a cave will have, will be exceptionally ethical, and experience has shown that that's not necessarily the case. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not the case that if someone, you know, becomes a, really good at, managing complex systems and you know and being able to kind of be like a magician of sorts in that space that they're gonna you know that they're not going to find value in going and sitting in meditation retreat and discovering you know stuff about their about their emotional worlds and thought worlds and body sensations and you know all yeah. that stuff yeah um but but part of what i mean the other idea and i guess this is why i brought up wilbur is um you know, the other idea that he had in the same kind of piece of writing was that there's, you know, that in a way you could look at each of the traditions as having the potential to be conveyor belts, bringing people through these, um, like, um, ethical stages of development, like that more like what Keegan describes, the meaning making stages. Um, and you, so you were talking specifically about that and how you've, you know, in a way, how you felt like um, most of Buddhism that you've encountered doesn't do a good job of that, um, of, of actually conveying yes. people through those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, Buddhism, as mainly taught, uh, so Keegan talks about how you mostly you can't make these stage transitions on your own. There has to be social support for it. Um, and, uh, so the, the container, he says, in which you make the transition, uh, needs to, um, challenge the level 
that you are at, uh, the stage that you're at, and it needs to support you through the difficult transition from one stage to the next where you're kind of in this groundlessness of not being able to make sense of yourself anymore. Yes. Um, and then to confirm you in your being at the next stage. And um, what I see is that Buddhism as mainly taught is constantly confirming stage three way of being and failing to challenge it. So it actually, and it has no support for moving to stage four. So it's actually something of an obstacle. But um, I sort of sketch ways in which Buddhism might be able to uh, challenge each stage, provide support for moving to the next stage, and then confirming that next stage. Okay, interesting. And it's it's funny because um, you know the there's that one there's one sutra that's always quoted in modern Buddhist context that I've I've been in. I'm um, forgetting the name of it, but search with a K. Um, Kalama? The Kalama Sutta, yeah. And, and you know, the whole notion of like, uh, you know, how the Buddha was sort of telling this group of people, you know, don't trust me because of this, this, and this, you know, because I'm a, a, a wise person or a spiritual teacher or, or this reason or that reason. Like you have to, you know, kind of listen to what I say and kind of, you know, confirm it in some way. Confirm it for yourself mm-hmm. is how it's often described. And so that 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 sutta like has become one of the core modern suttas, you know, in a way. Uh, along yeah, it's with, mostly like, the only one anybody's ever read. <laughs> yeah, along with you know like the Satipatthana and the Anapanasati, you know, the the ones that are about meditation. Um, yeah. And and so I mean that's interesting because that sutta seems to me, at least the way it's being interpreted, to try to to in a way try to deconstruct that stage three idea the communal mm-hmm. thing of like you know figuring it out for yourself is is kind of a way of of stepping outside of um in a way it, it's a pointer to try to step outside of or to challenge to the communal way of knowing where you're you know your your knowing is determined by your relationships and by, by what the group thinks in a way yeah um, and yet, it's weird. The paradox is, and I think you're probably already thinking this, is, you know, when you're in a community where everyone is saying, think for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so long as you come to the same conclusions we do when you, come, when you think for yourself, that is going to be good. <laughs> okay, okay. So is that what you mean when you say that, you know, it's a, sta- it's a stage three kind of environment? Yeah. Um, it, it's one in which, um, stage, stage three is a kind of communal and the ethics is based on compassion, which we hear an awful lot about. Um, the personal relationships are supposed to be symmetrical and equal. Um, there's a big problem there in terms of Buddhist teachers, um, who have a special role. You're not allowed to have a special role in stage three. And the there's not a lot of logic or rationality in the... Uh, there's no justifications that make a lot of sense. Um, instead, everything is kind of emotive and associationistic. There's a, there's a huge valorization of the importance of... Um, emotional comfort okay interesting so you know i think it's important you know for for me at least to take that critique seriously and say you know because one thing you point out which is very interesting and and i hadn't noticed this but as soon as you mentioned it it was obvious that like almost no one has taken this particular model you know keegan's model and and looked through it at Buddhist culture in the West. Um, yeah, nobody has before, at least that I was able to find. There's, I, I searched the um, Journal of Buddhist Ethics uh, to see Kohlberg. I mean, Keegan's work is not all that well known. Kohlberg's work, uh, who was Keegan's thesis supervisor, his mentor, who had a similar theory that Keegan essentially developed, um, 
there's only one article in the history of oh Kohlberg is you know a very major figure in ethical theory um and there's only one article in the entire history of the journal of buddhist ethics which has been going for more than 20 years that mentions him and that's basically he on the, the the authors of that um only use keegan or, or kohlberg in passing yeah that's i mean that that itself uh is kind of fascinating and i don't know speaks to me of the ways that you know that those different ways of looking at at experience or reality like really do kind of ice like get isolated and don't you know in in a way don't don't draw in other perspectives um yeah well i, I think buddhism has become i mean it buddhism in the early 20th century in asia was very much in dialogue with what was then cutting edge western thought and what we've got is uh you know what we've inherited as buddhism is the result of that but that dialogue essentially shut down sometime after the 60s maybe and uh you know the idea that you would look at serious western philosophy science i guess the neuroscience is at least paid lip service to now um but in general there's not nearly as much um looking at buddhism through serious western thought as i would like that's a point that um my friend Jayarava has made yep 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 so kind of going back into keegan's model um because this is this is I think one of the most interesting directions that you know that, that I found to to look at Buddhism from. Um, you know, you, you talk about, and this is a direct quote from from the article: "Development beyond stage four is driven by seeing contradictions within and between systems." Um, but before we go into beyond stage four, yeah, you know, you you also mention an interesting example of. Uh, of a Buddhist space or Buddhist inspired system that you felt like did actually support the development uh, in, in terms of Keegan's model beyond stage three, and that was the Shambhala Buddhist training system. Um, could you say a bit about that? Yeah, at the time that I did it, it was not the Shambhala Buddhist training system, it was the Shambhala training system, which was explicitly non Buddhist. Uh, although obviously it drew very heavily on Buddhism, right? Um, it's changed. I, I don't know that much about how it's changed, so what I have to say about it um, might not apply anymore. But uh, it, um, it, I, I, the same organization and the same people at that time wore two hats and both presented Buddhism and Shambhala training. And there's a huge difference in the style of the two. And uh, one, well, there's a slogan in Shambhala training, which is precision and gentleness. And those have to come together. And precision is something that, uh, that's a very stage four kind of term. And it's something that's mostly lacking in the the ethos. Maybe not in you know the the meditation instructions might involve some precision, but the cultural ethos of American Buddhism is very sort of sloppy. And so Shambhala I mean, has a, a really trivial point, but I think one that uh, opens up the whole style is that the Shambhala training weekends had a set curriculum with a very clear internal logic that was laid out, and there was a series of things that were to be done at particular times of day, and there would be a talk at two in the afternoon. And if the talk was supposed to be at two in the afternoon, then it began at two. It did not begin at 2.03 or 2.15. It began at 2. And um, that 
conveys that sense of precision and of there being a, a, a logic to how we're doing things and that we have the talk was given by the director and the director is a specific role that has particular responsibilities and prerequisites and duties, obligations, limits. Um, and the relationship of the students to the director is not a symmetrical one. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not an equal one. Um, this is not because the director is some sort of special person. It's a role. It's a formal role. Yeah. And, yeah. You mentioned, uh, just to interrupt you for a second, uh, at stage three, you are in roles, but at stage four, you have roles, which yes. you can relate to each other. You move in and out of roles. Mm -hmm. And what role you're in uh, constrains, to some degree, what you do and say and think and how you act. That's so interesting. I mean, not, not, not to go on a... Not to go on a complete tangent here, but this is one thing that um, that I've heard from from some of my peers, and I've personally complained about also at times is how you know how frustrating it can be working with a teacher um, who doesn't seem to realize that that's not a role that they are the teacher, um, and then and and it's not just that they are the teacher when they're in the role and they're really embodying the role. It's that you can see them outside of that context and they still are the teacher. They're still in the role. Mm -hmm. It's not a hat they can take off. It's like a mm -hmm. hat that's like kind of fused to their head. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a way in which that feels, um, you know, it doesn't allow for a kind of dynamism of relationship. Um, to, to see, you know, what is that person like outside of this role? How is this um, practice actually change them in these other contexts? You know, what do they mm -hmm. actually think about this, this X, Y, or Z? Um, you know, there's some, some way in which, you know, without go entering into that, um, that stage four understanding, which, you know, is described as being able to understand systems, um, or as the systemic mode, um, it feels like there's something fundamentally missing you know, or something really weirdly off. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you, uh, your description of Shambhala, but um, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I, I think, so I failed to mention the word systematicity, but that really is the the core of stage four, that it's understanding social systems and understanding yourself as a system that has, a system involves a structure of justification, so there's reasons for things, and so there's reasons for what you do, and, and uh, they're not sort of based on how you feel, they're based on um, a a core commitment that is principled in some way. Okay. So okay. So what? So one one thing that um, you know, one observation that I've that I've made recently in terms of how and how it connects to what you're saying. I wanted to share this with you and, and get your take on it. Um, I've noticed that there are a whole lot of people. Um, who are outside of what you're describing as the normal Buddhist cultures, um, mm -hmm. who still engage with Buddhist material and who maybe even go to centers and practice, um, but aren't really that involved, you know, um, in, in the community aspect. And, and I think Ken McLeod in the first conference, he called this the dark Sangha, um, mm. which was an interesting term. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I've noticed, you know, that uh, this dark, and I would consider myself part of the dark sangha if I weren't <laughs> in a weird public role of um, of of uh, running Buddhist geeks and of of teaching, um, because I, what I like about it is it, it seems like there's in the dark sangha there's a lot more room and a lot more space for people to be systematic. Uh, thinkers you know to, to try things mm -hmm. the DIY culture of it to try things to see what works to 
you know, reach out and connect with a couple people, you know, even practicing from different traditions and compare notes. And, you know, there's, there's, I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of, um, you know, breaking out of the, the, the Buddhist mold and, and still engaging with the material and trying things out. Um, yeah. And it seems like there's a large number of folks who probably because they go into some of these systems and they find them so claustrophobic, um, don't really become that involved in them. Yes. I think a lot of those people wind up being attracted to, you know, both what you do and what I do. Um, I found the first Buddhist geeks conference that you organized to be a fantastic revelation because there's all these people, uh, you know, I had no idea that there were other people who had those kind of attitudes. I think you sort of attracted the dark song, but particularly, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who may have some kind of a STEM background, society, uh, right. uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, um, who are just not willing to take stuff on authority and are, you know, skeptical about communal kind of values typically. Yes. Uh, and who do have very much of a systematic worldview, systemic worldview. Um, they show up commenting on my blogs and enthusiastically. And um, I think there, there's a huge underserved dark sangha there who are not finding what they need in Buddhism. And I don't think there's any reason Buddhism couldn't be providing what they need and want, but it's not there now. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a really, um, there's a lot there, a lot to be said there. Um, we may not be able to touch on all of it, but I, I, I tend to agree. And, um, even, even more interesting to me personally is where you start talking about the, the transition from, from Keegan's fourth to fifth stage, the, Mm -hmm. call it the fluid stage, the fluid Mm -hmm. mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that when I, I remember reading Keegan's uh, book in over our heads um, several years ago, and I remember reading that descriptions of that stage, and I, it was in particular was, he used a relationship to illustrate two, two different relationships. One he described as like a stage four relationship, and the other stage five. And I remember reading the description of the stage five one, and there were things in there like you know during a conflict, you know uh, we we find that you know while we get irritated and mad at each other, somehow the conflict ends up resolving us or something. And I remember mm-hmm. reading that and going, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> like, this makes absolutely no sense. It was like reading, you know, like some Zen poetry, you know, early in practice and going, what is this? Um, mm-hmm. And now I find that there's something really, really fascinating about that. I'm not sort of making a claim to my, my you know, my development or whatever, just to say, like, I, I find it really interesting what you wrote, that, um, that one notices um, contradictions within and between systems. So, like, in the previous stage, you know, one is able to come up with a whole ethical system, right, or to understand how things relate and kind of re- refine, like, a, a worldview around how to behave in the world and with reasons and principles that are all kind of interconnected. Um, but then as you describe it and as Keegan describes it, you know, it's like we start to see the limitations of our system, you know, the, the boundary cases, the edge yeah. cases, the places where it falls apart. And either we, and this is what I, what I started finding, especially when I, I was really into Wilbur, uh, is that, you know, the whole idea was, you know, at the systemic mode, anytime you find an edge case or a boundary where the system breaks apart, you just improve the system. You try to yeah. you try to fix the system and make it better, and the system yeah. is like trying to kind of encompass everything and include everything and any contradiction and any way that it breaks down. Like that's only kind of an indication that the system could be better. Um, yeah. And what I started finding was like a certain kind of uh, just frust- growing frustration with that process. And I remember in two thousand nine, I was on a month long retreat. Um, I share this because it, I feel like it illuminates some of what this transition, how you describe it, is like. I, I was doing inquiry practice. I was asking questions. But all, at the same time, 
I had Keegan's book with me, uh, his most recent one called Immunity to Change, which um, is actually a practical tech technique for how to objectify whatever stage you're at, how to actually see it you know, as, a, as an object and instead of being identified with it. And it's a, uh, have you seen this book, Immunity to Change? I, I, um, I know of it, but I haven't read it. Okay. Yeah. So I, I've only done the process a couple of times, but what was so interesting, like you go through this sort of series and I'd suggest it highly to anyone who is a geeky about, you know, stages of development <laughs> and, and some of the stuff we're talking about. It's like you, you kind of go through a weird process of, um, of several steps where you're kind of uh, objectifying and, and scrutinizing your point of view and your feelings from a different angle, and then you turn it around and you jujitsu it, and then you turn it around again. And, you, and it's very different than Buddhist practice. Um, it's very cognitive and very, I mean, it had an emotive, emotional element, but it was very cognitive and very, like nothing I'd done before. And at the very end, what you uncover in this process is you uncover a set of um, fundamental assumptions that you have about how reality functions. And, <laughs> and then as I was reading them out loud, the, the one that really blew my mind, and I really, in reading it, I had no clue that, that it was an assumption. Like it really shocked me when I first read it. And the, the assumption I had was that all paradoxes and contradictions I encounter should be able to be uh, integrated or resolved. Oh, how great. And yeah, because that, so that's great. really key to stage five is getting that that's not true. Yes. And, and what was weird is, you know, how to actually, like you said, how do you actually begin to challenge or question something and, and get that positive confirmation um, that helps you transition and, and one of the suggestions Keegan make, made, and I wonder how this might apply to Buddhist you know, communities, he, he suggested um, coming up with very simple ways to reality test the assumption and starting off with uh, stuff that's so simple and so easy that it, was, it doesn't really directly challenge it uh, so much as it does kind of like challenges slightly. And so one of my reality tests was instead of when I heard people describing something that I disagreed with, instead of trying to, um, you know, tell them how it fit in with my way of looking at things or disagree with them and provide an alternative viewpoint, I would instead uh, ask them a question. Mm. And... Um, as soon as I started doing that, I noticed like that they actually knew so much more than I realized. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they started like telling me stuff that I did not know. <laughs> or I certainly didn't know they didn't know. Or I certainly didn't know that that's something that they knew. Um, and I would be like, oh my God. Um, and so, you know, there's, I'm not sure exactly why I'm sharing this, except that it, it, it felt like it opened up a whole new kind of reality for me to start to, to kind of question the, the idea that I could ever really fully understand how things work, <laughs> um, mm. having like a system of thought. And that there, there's, like, there's so many systems of thought and systems of, of ways of, of being in the world, like ethical orientations even, um, that I know nothing about and, and really can't relate to from within inside my own, you know, orientation. Um, and, and that just felt like it really opened the whole world up and it opened my understanding of Buddhism up too. Um, you know, in a way where I just was really critical of, of any sort of absolute claim of knowledge that any Buddhist system would offer. Mm -hmm. Um, thoughts uh wow um <laughs> i need to read that book <laughs> uh yeah i mean certainly uh you know stage four uh is is dogmatic in in that the system is has to be capable of explaining everything and if it actually doesn't then 
somehow things will be forced to fit in by some kind of forcing. Um, and realizing that that actually can't work, um, that there's no system that's going to explain everything. Uh, you know, that I think that's, that there's a word eternalism, which is used in a, an unusual way in Dzogchen. Um, it's not quite the same way it's used in other Buddhism, uh, which is uh, kind of an insistence that there's some principle that explains everything. And Dzogchen says, no, there isn't one like that. And that's one of the ways that it's stage five-like. And I think uh, Dzogchen has a critique of other forms of Buddhism as having subtle eternalisms in them that they there's always some claim that's absolute. And um, I think that's the attraction of Buddhism, like all other religions, for all of us, really, is that it does seem to have some principle that then explains everything, and then we can feel comfortable about the world making sense and Maybe we don't quite know all about how it makes sense, and uh, you know it's still awful, awful and marked by suffering, et cetera. But we know that there's this thing that explains everything, and so it's all all right. And that's something you'll kind of need to let go of at a certain point. Yeah, it's the kind of it's the it's the whole kind of I guess the God the God principle, right? Where yeah, it's like. Awakening stands in for God as the, the yes. thing we project all of our ideals onto. Um, exactly. Yeah, and then they they never really, uh, it never really is that way. Yeah. <laughs> Which means I'm not enlightened enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get back to work. Sort of, <laughs> the carrot is always a little bit further ahead. <laughs> Yeah, and that you know, that's I think in some ways I wonder, you know, because the other part to me of uh, you know we haven't talked about it, but of wisdom, you know, looking at that three trainings thing again, you know, is interesting because uh, it seems to me that the three trainings themselves, the understanding of them, change even as as you change your vantage point, looking at these from these different stage models. You know, maybe in the third stage, morality makes a lot more sense. Maybe in the fourth stage, ethics, you know, is, is an appropriate mm-hmm. um, interpretation of, of that, whatever that is. Um, but, you know, moving beyond that or, or starting to deconstruct that and open to something new. And you point out also, and this is, I think, worth mentioning, like, there is a kind of nihilism that arises as you deconstruct whatever stage you're at. And, and I think that's, that seems to apply both to these uh, meaning-making stages that Keegan describes as well as to meditative stages, um, you know, where you kind of are in that groundless place where every, like, you know, what, what was stable prior is gone, but there's nothing yet there to replace it. Um, yeah. There's just a lot of confusion and a lot of, like, trying to grab onto something usually from the past um, that worked or drive on something else that might work and, and just keep failing. And there's a way mm-hmm. that it feels, it can be really nihilistic in that phase to, to feel like there's nothing to hold on to and there's nothing that makes any sense anymore. Yeah. That's particularly between four and five. Right. Uh, right. And I sort of see the, the cutting edge of Western culture as kind of floundering in that transition um, that we haven't got a good cultural support for stage five, but we have a postmodernism gives a a more or less accurate critique of stage four, and that's now widely understood. And and so we've got the challenge from postmodernism, um, but we don't have any support through the transition. And uh, I would like to believe that Buddhism can provide that support that um, for people who have seen through dogmatic systems uh, but haven't yet consolidated a a more fluid way of being that there's 
um, a really dark, horrible place you can find yourself in there. And um, maybe we can help people through that. I guess one of my questions is, you know, looking from the Keegan vantage point, what, what would a stage five Buddhism look like? Oh, it's kind of an interesting question. And you seem to, you start kind of flirting with that question, I feel like, toward the end, and in particular where you start to kind of um, describe some of the kind of similar-sounding ideas in Dzogchen um, with how Keegan describes um, stage five. And, and to me, that... Some some of the actually the most poetic stuff in here. This I wouldn't call this series poetic in any way, <laughs> but there is toward the very end a certain kind of poetry in how you describe that. Can I share one thing that I that I thought was really interesting? This is from like the second to last page of the uh, of your series. Yeah, it's a bit spacey there. It's well, I like it. Uh, Good. <laughs> Tantra develops mastery of precise action within systems. For Dzogchen, systems are fluid and transparent. Dzogchen may use systems or pieces of systems in the flow of effortless improvisation. Where the Tantrika is a technician, the Dzogchenpa is a musician. Great jam band players master the technical details of a musical genre or many genres, but transcend them. They may reference, borrow from, combine, and play with styles and techniques, but their music flows spontaneously from the texture of the moment of playing. Yeah, in Dzogchen, this is called Lundrup, uh, which means spontaneous, I translated it as spontaneous beneficent action. And the Dzogchen uses methods from other Buddhist systems, but relativizes them so that instead of being dogmatic, ultimate, truths, ultimate methods, they are um, heuristics or ways of looking, tricks of the trade that you can deploy skillfully in particular contexts as is appropriate and combine them. Interesting. And how do you see that relating to, or why did you draw a parallel with that and and Keegan's uh, fluid mode? Well, it's, um, it's a matter of being meta-to-systems, that you're not operating within a particular system, but you have the ability to operate within a particular system and to understand the the function, the principles and the function of each system so that you can see how it's useful or not useful in a particular situation and how to apply it to particular things because you're standing outside of it to some degree, not entirely, you know, and you're not alienated from it, but you're standing outside of it enough to, to say, okay, is this actually going to be useful here? Um, what what can I take from this system and apply here? Or maybe there's nothing, maybe I need to be looking at other systems and taking pieces of this and pieces of that, depending on what's actually arising. Or even perhaps to step into a system and just operate uh, temporarily operate within that system yes mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so for example um uh sutrayana from the Dzogchen point of view that's um most of buddhism the the core principle of that is one of renunciation of not acting on your desires and uh allowing the desires to dissipate and um Generally, for Vajrayana, that's not the way you operate. But if, for example, you find you're drinking rather too much, um, then you may step into a citric worldview and say, right, um, actually, in this context where I Mm -hmm. seem to be a little out of control, I need to apply a renunciative point of view here. Yeah, yeah. And and, and it seems like even to do that, you have to sort of be outside the nihilistic mode um, to some mm-hmm. degree to, 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 
to to make the value judgment at all <laughs> that it's useful yeah. to you know to to change your trajectory or do something differently, you know that there's some uh, there's some use use in doing that or, or it's not a totally futile um, effort. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's when you move out of stage four, you're doing that because you realize that systems are not the answer, uh, and then that puts you into this four and a half nihilism. Um, but then you start to see that actually systems do function. They're not complete answers to anything, but they have relative usefulness. And, you know, systems are great. Uh, you just don't believe that they are ultimate. But so long as you understand them as relative, then you can enter and exit them and uh, you know, recombine them and play games with them. You could—I use the word conjuration—that you can do magic tricks with systems. Interesting. I was—I was just last night. You know, um, we had a little uh, practice group here in um, Asheville, and the topic or the theme that we were exploring was the personal and the universal, which is sort of <clears throat> like a sim- somewhat similar to like relative and ultimate, but. Um, you know, part part of that exploration for me has turned into, and, and I, I see this reflected in your writing as well, especially on meaningness. You know, where the personal being like a, you know, the unique personal expression of something, um, uh, it, you know, it's it's so easy to go from that to to realizing that you know, of course we share that our personal experience with others in many ways, you know, and so like those systems are relative on the one hand, um, but then there's commonalities, you know, there's, there's ways in which they're, they share certain characteristics or qualities with other, you know, with, uh, I do with other people, these systems do with other systems. And so then it's like that to me, like that shift is what kind of enables one to step outside of the personal or the, or the particular, um, but then it seems like you know when you're talking about like uh, monism, you know, and eternalism. It's like when you when you sort of plant your flag in that new, you know, that new universal that you found. And you say it's all it's this way always, all the time, um, and aren't able to kind of then toggle back into like another instance of the personal, or to see that actually that universal thing that you realize is, is like something you are realizing um, in a particular way. Um, that's different perhaps than other people are realizing it. Um, I know this is a little abstract, but it, you know, it feels that way to me. Um, sometimes, um, it also feels really personal sometimes, you know, there's, there's a way in which that toggling between the, 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 the personal and the universal becomes, you know, something that it, it's just a constantly happening anyway. Um, yeah. and, and it seems like the main challenge is like when we, when, when there's some amount of sticking to a particular position in that in that flow, well, I think stage five is really hard to talk about. Yeah. Um, I, I think I, I think Keegan has done a really nice, well, I, I found profoundly inspiring analysis of it, but he's annoyingly. Um, short on details and concrete examples. And there's the one that you mentioned of of a stage four versus stage five marriage Mm -hmm. that gives some intuition. And he also talks about management styles, that you can have a a style of managing at stages three, four, and five, and how those are different. But it's... um, I hope to develop... Um, publicly develop more of an understanding of what goes into stage five and how, how it may operate. Yeah, cool. That's uh, that's really exciting to me. I mean, and in a way, it feels like that's where the series leaves off. Um, yeah, and you know, I I would say you know just being familiar with that model too. Like, I'm I'm really curious and interested in um, also figuring out what like what 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 a stage five expression that includes Buddhist elements might look like, you know, and not to say that, that I have figured that out at all, but I, but I do feel 
clear and confident now, you know, it's been several years after that insight of like, oh, I can't actually, the assumption that I can resolve all contradictions and paradoxes. Um, I do feel like it has been a dark period, you know, um, in the last few years, uh, uh, certain kinds of nihilism. And I'm just now starting to get the sense of that there might be a way forward. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the way forward is, except that it seems to be rooted in conversation as opposed to Mm -hmm. um, what I've done previously, which is more treating people as the experts, you know, the ones who know, um, who have like the the correct system or, or that I need to kind of, in a way, I don't know if this is relevant to, to this conversation, but maybe this, for me, it ties things together a bit. You know, in a way, like, I don't know if you remember Buddhist Geeks, our, our first koan was about exploring the convergence of um, Buddhism with technology and culture. And I've started to realize recently that, that, that there's a part of that aim which is really naive and idealistic because on the one hand, it sort of takes these different things and it, they shine a light on each other. And the primary aim of the koan was to, at least initially, see how that light shining on each other from these different vantage points, um, like to see where they converge, where they line up, and what is it that's common among them. And the other part, though, of light shining on itself from different like perspectives is there's a divergence. You know, there's a way in which they don't line up and they're, they're irreconcilable. That you know that the, they don't the systems don't fit, um, and there isn't mm-hmm. anything amongst those systems that when they you put them together that works together. And those divergence points um, are also really fascinating, and they kind of point beyond um, the systems to toward new things. Just as the convergence points uh, point to something really interesting um, that that also is beyond any one of the individual systems. So. Um, you know, for me, I, I realized that koan was kind of dead when I realized that that the preference for convergence, the preference for what is shared or common amongst the different things, was itself a kind of partial attitude or or like my own kind of um, you know blind spot was to to, to kind of to, to 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 want to avoid the divergence, to want to avoid the the irreconcilable differences, or to think that that those were somehow um, not going leading in interesting directions too and and so somehow like at the moment my, my my intuition or my thought is like how to how to hold both um of those things and i don't know you know i don't know how that's done um that's why the koan is about um you know when you see uh, dharma in the world liberate it um i don't know what it means to liberate dharma exactly <laughs> yeah. well in in tantric twilight speech liberate to liberate means to kill yeah that's interesting because the original zen koan you know if you see the buddha on the road kill him that that's kind of in a way like part of the inspiration for this koan but and yet liberate uh-huh. that's interesting so because liberate to me had a the killing felt like the four and a half stage you know like it felt yeah. like you just destroy it um mm-hmm. and that's that's the whole methodology but to liberate something, like you have to kill something, but you also have to, like something else emerges out of the killing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or the killing reveals something that couldn't be killed. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my koan is, you know, what's left? Mm. You know, we've got this corpse of Buddhism, maybe, mm. or the ruined city. And yet there's this sense that there's something profoundly important there that it's a little difficult to get a handle on what it is. But uh, I think we can live it to some degree, even if we don't fully understand it. And we can, I think, make, progress towards understanding it as well great well i guess the uh, the proof will be in the pudding yeah <laughs> so to speak
Yeah, and I think it's it's a well, I, it's not so much a proof in the pudding as that it's an ongoing process, and you know, will be. Um, I, I I oscillate between uh, profound pessimism and profound optimism for Buddhism. That um, <laughs> <laughs> now that's interesting. I can totally relate to that. Yeah. And I know a lot of people for whom that's true as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we're sort of at an interesting point. I mean, this is sort of the case I've been making on my blog in an obnoxious way for five years now, that a particular idea of what Western Buddhism uh, is has kind of, I believe now, kind of come to it, come to its end. That has yeah. That is the corpse. And the question is, what next... Um, what can we find that is of great value that, you know, um, was obscured, uh, but also, you know, it would be wrong to dismiss the kind of Buddhism that America developed over the past three, four decades. There is... right. It's not about going Some backwards. real inspiration, yeah. Um, you know, at the same time, that's kind of come to its logical conclusion. There is there is real inspiration in people having said Buddhism is profoundly important, and at the same time, it has to work with Western culture. And how's that going to happen? After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.